For status, I am Mira Nabulsi. In January, an 18-year-old Saudi woman, Rahaf Muhammad al qnoun sparked international attention when she took on to social media as she barricaded herself in a hotel room in Bangkok to stop Thai authorities from deporting her back against her will to her home country. Rahaf had left her family to seek asylum abroad. She said her life was in danger and that her abusive family escalated her mistreatment after she declared herself an atheist. Rahaf eventually made it to Canada, where she was granted asylum. But Rahaf's story is not unique. In fact, a growing number of Saudi women and men are leaving the country, immigrating or seeking asylum elsewhere. This phenomenon can be explained at least in part due to the Saudi state's lack of support for abused women and the overall crackdown on freedom of expression. So how did Saudi media react to the story and how do we place the story of Rahaf in the larger Saudi-Canadian relations and the status of women inside Saudi Arabia? Hana Al-Khamari is a writer and analyst who has worked in a Saudi newspaper in Jeddah and is currently based in Sweden. Al-Khamari writes for the Washington Post and Al Jazeera English, among other publications. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Women Journalists in Gender Apartheid Saudi Arabia. So there has been big coverage of the story of the Saudi young woman, Rahaf Muhammad, who escaped mm. her family when they were on a visit from Saudi Arabia to Kuwait. She left the family, hoping to seek asylum in Australia. For listeners who may have missed the story, can you give us a little context and say something about the Saudi government trying to get the Thai government to send Rahaf back to Saudi Arabia? The story of Rahaf is not new, and it's not the first time. We have witnessed stories of young Saudi women trying to escape abusive families, escaping gender-based violence, and Rahaf was one of them. She try to find a way, an opportunity to run away from the, her family and seek protection. And this case is a symptom of a larger problem in Saudi Arabia because women live still in a gender apartheid state, despite all the claim for reform and changes that are taking place in the kingdom. This regime is a misogynist. It's a regime that forces women to live under the guardianship system, which basically means that women will never be an adult. You have to get the permission of your male relative, and that could be all the way from your father, your brother, and even your own son, and later on your grandson, in order to travel, to, to study, to open a bank account, or to do a basic things, or even a, issue your passport. So Rahaf uh, found the opportunity to escape from Kuwait because it's impossible to travel as a Saudi woman from Saudi Arabia unless you're, you get your permission from your male relative to leave the country. And Rahaf is one of the luckiest tale because the Saudi regime and the Saudi foreign minister actually cooperated with the abusive family members of those victims and forced them to return back to Saudi Arabia. But Rahaf made it out and managed to reach the shore of safety thanks to all engagement in Twitter. But I believe strongly her case was treated differently because of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. The murder of Jamal Khashoggi, you know, it sort of created a momentum 
and understanding that this regime could go so far to harm its own citizen. She was in a need for protection, and then you need just to react to to help her. Yeah, I was going to ask you, why do you think her story received all of this international attention? Well, I believe, you know, Saudi Arabia, prior to Jamal Khashoggi murder, is not the same after his death. Mm-hmm. The Saudi journalists who were, you know, dismembered and brutally murdered inside the Saudi consulate in a third country, it's just unbelievable. And it shows the brutal and the true face of this, you know, authoritarian state. Prior to Jamal Khashoggi, the current king uh, and, in fact, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who is the de facto king today in Saudi Arabia, he constructed this reform image about himself, where he also promoted uh, as, uh, where he actually exploited and used women's issues uh, through claiming to be a women's liberator, permitting women the right to drive their car, mm-hmm. or, you know, calling for pushing women to the working force and all these things. Actually, he managed this public relation machines and propaganda to construct these images that doesn't reflect the reality and improvement of Saudi women's life on the ground. You know, the world was in a mood to believe that there are changes that are taking place in the kingdom. And I had difficulty actually to try to address the nature of the changes. I tried to be critical about the way that changes because it's very oppressive nature of changes. Mohammed bin Salman is becoming, his claim for reform was taking place in a fascist manner where he established the doctrine, you are either with me or against me, where his um, the end in his power is to consolidate his influence and power in the kingdom, not sincerely to change the statu quo uh, of women in Saudi Arabia. It's true that women are allowed to drive a car, but they they are still live under the full control of the guardianship system. And you know, it's incredible how one thing that demonstrates how this regime indeed hates women or misogynists, it's the fact that when a young Saudi man commit crimes, in the U.S. or Canada, and then they had to stand before trial. Mm -hmm. So the embassies in these countries actually facilitate and provide uh, protection and facilitate plans for those kids to escape the country. While when a Saudi woman tried to escape violence and, uh, and the threat to lose her life, the Saudi regime conspire and cooperate with her abusive family to send them back to oppressive and abusive family members. Building up on that, Rahaf is now in Canada. She has been granted asylum and she's been sharing pictures on social media about her new life. But back in Saudi Arabia, the media dealt yet with another PR blow to its image. So can you tell us a little bit about how Saudi media covered Rahaf's story? First of all, uh, before we go into specifically uh, looking into how they covered Rahaf's story, we need to understand that there is no an independent media in the kingdom. All local newspaper, press and TV are controlled by the government. And you know, when I, I worked as a journalist in Saudi Arabia, so I often joke and describe the Ministry of Media 
to be similar to the Ministry of Truth of George Orwell 1984, where they indoctrinate and present one single narrative, which is the narrative of the regime. And it's the only single true narrative. And anyone who attempts or try to question will be in great danger. I mean, local Saudi newspaper had to be read by officer in the Ministry of Media. And I remember when I worked in the local newspaper in Saudi Arabia, that sometime there was a delay to print the newspaper because the officer didn't manage to read. Didn't finish reading. (laughs) Yes, didn't finish reading. So despite the claim for reform and changes, there is no room for freedom of expression. You know, even the very limited and margin room that existed before the current leadership in Saudi Arabia, which were the people or the local newspaper were able to address social problems like gender-based violence or the increased number of divorce in the country or uh, terrorism or extremism ideology. And all these things has disappeared now. The only narrative or discourse that need to be presented is the narrative of Mohammed bin Salman. Mm. So Rahaf, the fact that she managed to escape and the fact that she brought all this attention, the fact that she actually, her case contributed to questioning the issue of and the claim for reform in Saudi Arabia was hard for the kingdom and for the regime to take. And also that a woman, a young woman actually managed to survive against all these oppression and patriarchal norm and structure. And Saudi Arabia is a very patriarchal country. There is a very strong patriarchal social structures and norms, and adding to the fact that the media is controlled by the regime. So, of course, Raha was described in an awful way. She was described as a prostitute. She was described as a psychologically damaged woman. She was described as a victim of an <laughs> award conspiracy against the two holy places, you know, the country where they host the two holy cities. So this is how the local Saudi newspaper published her case. But nevertheless, you see that on Twitter, which is the only remaining platform for Saudis to express some of their views, ordinary Saudis who try to be, uh, to hide behind pseudonyms, nicknames, they actually express solidarity. Mm-hmm. They actually try to point to the importance of ending enslaving Saudi women and the issue of the guardianship. But what happened the last few years is the office of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Saud al-Qahtani, who was one of his close advisors and the guy who is, you know, mastermind behind the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, mm. he set up something called a Dubab al-Electroni, a whole army of Like the trolls. electronic flies, uh, essentially. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> trolls and flies that try, you know, constantly discredit all these voices that try to express any solidarity. And we have seen all those women who, activists abroad, who try to help um, Rahaf throughout her case, uh, they have received so much hate. They've been attacked. So generally, there is no way for anyone inside Saudi Arabia to express any support for her case. Mm -hmm. Although I know that Many young women feel for her and they understand that the case of Rahaf is a result of this systematic 
gender discrimination against women in the country, that did not change. Saudi Arabia doesn't have an official constitution, but they have something, a document called the Nidam al-Hukum, or the Rule of Governance. This document doesn't actually prohibit any form of discrimination uh, against women. It doesn't. So there is an institutionalized discrimination against women. Women still live in a gender-segregated country. As I grew up in Saudi Arabia, you know, I went to public schools from all the way from elementary, uh, intermediate and high school. All female schools, public schools in the countries are labeled after numbers. For instance, the elementary of one, the intermediate of two, while all male or boys schools are labeled after historical male figures. <laughs> so you are actually right from the beginning introduced into a life of invisibility, just an, an alive base of gender discrimination. And you have to face all these discrimination just because of your gender. So I think the case of Rahaf, it should be a reminder of those who didn't make it. Before her, there was the case of Dina, whom we failed to protect. She used exactly the same channel, but Saudi Arabia was in a different time where, you know, the world was in a mood to believe on change and revolution and the Mm -hmm. Saudi Mm -hmm. false Arab Spring, you know? Yeah, it seems to me like also the timing, like you were saying, uh, has played a role because this happened at a time where there was a lot of international attention to the case of Jamal Khashoggi's assassination, Mm -hmm. that perhaps there has been a momentum or an international mood that's a little more critical of uh, Saudi Arabia and MBS. And actually on that, I was interested to know if you think Canada granting her asylum was a political move. We know that there is tension between the two governments. So do you believe that Canada granting Graf asylum was political? From a human perspective, I think this girl was in need of protection and Mm. she got that protection. That's the most important aspect. But of course, if we look at it, there was a strained and tension between the Saudi-Canadian relationship when the Canadian demanded uh, more information about all Saudi women's rights activists who've been actually demanding for years, for decades, to allow women to drive a car are today behind bars. And when the Canadian asked about their fate and demanded more information, uh, the Saudis responded in a very aggressive manner where they cut relationship with the Canadian government. Of course, it, it is political, but do I really care? I don't. The most important thing is that there was a, a life in danger mm. and the Canadian managed to save it. And the most important thing is to draw our attention to the main issue. Let's question the Saudi government uh, oppressive nature of changes. Let's question the Saudi government about all those incredible Saudi women's rights activists who are still behind bars, mm. who are actually objected to torture and sexual harassment by close aides to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. You know, the number of people who've been imprisoned during the leadership of King Salman and his son, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, it's unprecedented. It never happened in the Saudi history. So, I mean, now you're no longer only sent behind bars 
because you're criticizing the royal family. You know, an economist like Isam al-Zamil, who just from an economic point of view, criticized the Saudi decision to sell some of part of the Aramco, the largest oil company in the world, he also was imprisoned. So I think we need to shift now the perspective and the discussion mm-hmm. around the development taking place in Saudi Arabia. We need to shed the light about prisoners of conscience, about the war crimes committed in Yemen, about all the, you know, major decision that is not impacting only Saudi Arabia, but the whole region. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason I also mentioned the issue of Canada stepping in, whether that was political, is also because I noticed many people over social media bringing to attention stories of other women seeking asylum, including the story of one Yemeni woman who I believe was trying to seek asylum both in Canada and the U.S. and has been struggling to get that. Mm. So the issue of hypocrisy of of Canada in this case. I read that there are thousands of hanging applications when it comes to people seeking asylum. So definitely understand what you're saying. But I'm also interested in how international relations play out in this type of case. Well, I didn't deny that there is a possibility. Or, well, Mm. Canada had a chance to, you know, to hit back Saudi Arabia after all the fuss was made because of the Canadian foreign minister comment on the Saudi women's rights activists who are in jail today. But to me, Mm -hmm. uh, what matters is what was the cause that led Rahaf to be there in Canada in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that this regime did not change its stance on women. It did not improve the situation of women. And when it comes to the fact of hypocrisy, I I don't know about process of um, asylum seeking in Canada, Mm -hmm. but what what I see as a person who grew up in Saudi Arabia, the differences between Canada and Saudi Arabia, that you have sort of check and balance. You have law in place. But in a country like Saudi Arabia, you don't have a civil society. Mohammed bin Salman have more than 12 uh, title all the way from defense minister to the crown prince to the deputy prime minister to all the way down to you know the head of the camel club and on the top of that you have a system where women go to the police to report their abusive male relative and the police instead of taking their report into seriously and trying to provide protection they ask the women to actually ask their abusive male relative to come Mm -hmm. and sign on the report because they are minor. They are perceived as a minor. Mm -hmm. So what matters for me is to focus of what made the case of Rahaf the case of Rahaf Mm -hmm. is, in fact, the situation of women in Saudi Arabia. Well, if Canada use this or not, they don't use it, well, they politicize it. That's another issue. And I leave it to those who think it's much more important than protecting uh, a woman's life. We should also mention that Western states still enable, largely enable this government to do what it does. We haven't seen serious challenges, Uh, despite the fact uh, that there was a huge international momentum around the Khashoggi case including in the U.S. And so far, we haven't seen serious movement on the issue of weapons sale, military support, all of that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's hypocrisy. That's one of the major reasons that contribute to the resilience of the Saudi regime. Uh, Of course, the fact that one of the main reasons why the war until now in Yemen is not secede, it's because there are so many Western countries are making profits 
of the continuation of war for selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. That's hypocrisy because at one hand, those countries are claiming to uphold international human rights norm, but at the same time, that's not for the people in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. as long as there is a profit. And on the top of that, in the middle of all these dramatic changes and the crackdown on the informal civil society that existed in Saudi Arabia and all those critical and incredible reformists and activists in the kingdom, Saudi Arabia now is actually has a seat in the UN Human Rights Council and also the UN Women's Rights Committee. Mm -hmm. Personally, I believe in constructivism where sometimes you need to invite some authoritarian state into the international community so that they could socialize into a human rights norm and they could learn from it. But I believe that doesn't work with Saudi Arabia because they use their economic and financial political leverage to push other actors to accept the statu quo in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. But even to block and intimidate states who are trying to question uh, the issue of women, the migrant worker or other issues in the country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Having this country in the UN Human Rights Council or the, the Women's Rights Committee actually contributed to somehow to commit all these violations because it provides immunity. It doesn't hold them accountable. And until we had to witness this murder killing of the Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. So I think we need to make a sort of reassessment and push for this perspective. And if you notice, unlike the grave reaction of the Saudi government when the foreign minister made that comment on Twitter, this time they did not make a single official comment. They kept a low profile. They didn't say more than this is a private issue, right? And they selecting this path only because of Jamal Khashoggi. They're trying to weather the storm and to avoid further diplomatic crisis at the moment. But do you think Rahaf's story of her escaping her family and the large international attention that came with that perhaps pushed the conversation about women's rights in Saudi Arabia, internationally or even within? From following the conversations within the Saudi society, there has been a lot of Arab media coverage as well. Um, and I think there has been also some thoughtful pieces that talked about whether this incident is perhaps benefiting or making Saudi women and their demands even more vulnerable. I'm thinking also of the story of Lujain Al-Hadloul. Within days of Rahaf's story, her sister Alia, she wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times in which she revealed that her sister Lujain, who is one of the the prominent uh, Saudi woman currently in jail mm. because of her advocacy for women's rights and ability to drive. She revealed in that opinion piece in the New York Times mm. that her sister has been tortured, threatened with rape, mm. and gravely mistreated while mm. being in Saudi detention. We should point out that Lujain was arrested or her latest arrest happened right before the lifting of the ban on Saudi women's right to drive. It seems to me like there is this thing going on, almost like a conundrum for Saudi women fighting for their rights. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, sometimes it feels too little too late. Those women have been arrested since May last year. And we start hearing about their stories 
became much more visible and much more spoken up uh, after the death of Jamal Khashoggi. The tragedy of Lujaina and all her fellow activists, those are incredible, incredible women. And it's the tale and the struggle of Saudi you know, women's rights movement that starts in 1990. You know, that was the time where 47 Saudi women during the Iraq invasion in Kuwait, where they witnessed Kuwaiti women driving car inside the kingdom, escaping the war and American female soldier <laughs> driving in the city of Riyadh. And this raised the question why those women are driving in our country while we are denied the right to sit behind the wheel. So they organized and they arranged the first Saudi women's demonstration to demand end of driving the ban. Those four incredible, courageous, amazing Saudi women who staged the first Saudi movement, the historical first Saudi movement, they were uh, imprisoned, their passports were confiscated, uh, they were expelled from schools, they faced collective punishment. The person who was actually behind, oversaw this punishment, was Salman bin Abdul Aziz. He was the former governor in Riyadh, and he is the current king of Saudi Arabia. 27 years later, his son, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he decides to allow women to drive a car on one hand. And on the other hand, the, the regime calls all prominent women's rights activists, including Lujain and her fellow sister who are in detention today, and demanded them to not comment on the regime decision to allow women to drive a car. And this shows you the contradiction in, in the system where they want to demonstrate that this is a decision was given by the king to the people, while in fact, it was a long struggle from 1919 to 2011 to 2013, where Lujain staged October demonstration, and she was one of those who called for women to drive a car. Nevertheless, that the fact that those women were arrested right after allowing women to drive a car, it did not get attention. While all media was parachuting inside the kingdom to cover this historical moment, no one was paying attention to the ordeal of those women in Saudi Arabia. And you know, Lujain, she is an incredible woman. She comes from a privileged Saudi family. She would have just had a good life, enjoying all her privileges, you know. But she's an organic intellectual person who refused to live in this way and instead fought to have an equal right and gender equality for her and for everyone in her country. So, of course, it's very important and good that those women stories are coming up. Those are just a few samples of many other Saudi women are still behind bars. Many knows about Lujain because we have here pictures, but there are others that we don't have a picture, like Nov Abdelaziz and Maya Zahrani and many others, whom we don't know their fate until today. So what we need is to do whatever it takes to pressure the Saudi government to release these women immediately without any conditions. I salute the courage of her sister, uh, Alia, to write this uh, article. It's not easy knowing that the Saudi regime uses a collective punishment to ensure silencing the family member of dissidents or prisoners of conscience. But her article came when the reports and the news were coming out about the 
torture and sexual harassment incidents that those Saudi women rights activists face inside Saudi jail. And when her father tweeted indirectly confirming these news, and this went viral, and just one day later, he had to disappear from Twitter. So it's very good and important that Alia article came out. And, and I think Saudi women's movement and Saudi women's are activists, they are in immense solidarity and support to push the Saudi government to release them immediately. Of course, Rahaf case is encouraging other women who are actually suffering under the guardianship system and uh, gender-based violence to choose the path, you know, to escape the country and seek refugee. But not, this is not only for women, but also, you know, uh, a dissident Saudi men who cannot express their thoughts or opinion and live safely. So actually, there is, of course, a risk for mass immigration. Mm. And when I'm Saudi Arabia, I talked to some Saudis who actually already was considering the option of migrating from the kingdom. There is stifling uh, environment and there is an oppression. In fact, I think two years ago, for the first time in Saudi Arabia history, Majlis Shura, the national uh, Saudi assembly, which its member appointed by the kingdom, and basically it's called the consultative body, mm. they only consultative role, uh, they were discussing the issue of a million Saudi who migrated from the country in one year. Wow. Yes. So even the government is admitting that this is becoming an issue. Mm. Is this uh, mostly men or is it both men and women? I mean, I don't know. I mean, we don't know the numbers uh, there, exactly. There was just a general number without mm. a clear statistic on on male and female. Mm. But I I believe it's at the moment the scale of repression in Saudi Arabia is so high, and there is an increase in gender based violence, and these neoliberalism policies and privatization is start impacting people's lives. And you know, Saudi Arabia for the first time it has introduced some form of taxation where people has to pay like 5% of mm. their tax without any representation. So there is a sense of frustration among the Saudi population. So I believe that the number of people escaping Saudi Arabia and seeking refugee across Europe and Western countries will probably increase. Hannah, we are based in the U.S., Many of our listeners are in the U.S. So I don't know if you have any final thoughts based on everything you've been telling us, especially about the cases of these women activists who dared to actually challenge this regime. One key source of survival to this brutal regime is the American administration or or Trump administration. In fact, if American citizens could call their you know their representative to try to push them to pressure the Saudi regime hold them accountable for all violation committed against those women's rights activists i think this is very crucial the historically saudi arabia doesn't have any source of legitimacy its source of legitimacy has been based on securing you know support from american administration to survive and Islam was constructed as their source of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And the third one is oil, was all the time a third source of legitimacy where the regime all the time tried to, you know, portray the king 
uh, distributing this uh, rentier system, uh, distributing services for free and return for loyalty. Now, economically, Saudi Arabia is facing pressure and therefore all these diversification and new liberalism policies are introduced in the country in order to survive the drop in oil prices because the country is no longer able to provide all services for free without taxation, right? But the neoliberalism policies in a country that is authoritarian creates a class issues. There is an increased poverty, which is a taboo in a country, in an oil country, Saudi Arabia. You know, an official statistic that there are around 4 million Saudi who live under the poverty line in an oil-rich country. When it comes to Islam, Mecca and Medina, which is the two holy sites for Muslims around the world, has been all the time used as a source for legitimacy and survival to the kingdom. And it's no wonder that the king's title is the custodian of the two holy cities. And also it guaranteeing support from the religious establishment. But you know what? The religious establishment in Saudi Arabia has been weakened. They are only servant. Their role has been neutralized for years. They receive salary from the king. So they're going to provide whatever fatwa, whatever statement that the king requests. And the third and the most important source of survival and legitimacy is the American administration. And the policies that Trump has adopted, the friendly relation to the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, has emboldened him actually Mm -hmm. to commit war crimes in Yemen, emboldened him to commit human rights violations, to imprison all these great numbers of uh, peaceful reformists and activists. Like Khashoggi. Yes, like Khashoggi. And this is, I mean, the tragedy with the Khashoggi case is the fact that he was a person who was close to the establishment. Mm -hmm. So if this happens to a person who was close to the establishment and he was dismembered in a third country, what happens to those who we don't know about and who are dissidents Mm -hmm. inside the country or behind bars. So we cannot afford more tragedies in Saudi Arabia. And you know, there is a saying that what happens inside Saudi Arabia doesn't stay inside Saudi Arabia. It will have an implication in the region. And we already have enough conflicts and wars in this region. We don't want to create another one. So we need to stop talking about fake reforms in Saudi Arabia and talk about this crisis of legitimacy, talk about oppression and oppressive regimes in the kingdom and try to push for a genuine reform that includes, you know, separation of power, opening the space for civil society, you know, allowing freedom of expression and releasing all prisoners unconscious and, you know, ending all these secret trials waged against dissidents Mm -hmm. in the kingdom. Hana Al-Khamari is a writer and analyst who has worked as a journalist in Saudi Arabia and is currently based in Sweden. She writes for The Washington Post and Al Jazeera English, among other publications. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Women Journalists in Gender Apartheid Saudi Arabia.